Today's scripture reading is from Exodus 14 to 15. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back in camp in front of Periharoth, between Midgal and the sea. You must camp in front of Baal Zephon, facing it by the sea. Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, They are wandering around the land in confusion, and the wilderness has boxed them in. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. Then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their mind about the people and said, What have we done? We have released Israel from serving us. So that he got his chariot ready and took his troops with him. He took 600 of the best chariots and all the rest of the chariots of Egypt with the officers in each one. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians coming after them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what, God, isn't this, isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you must be quiet. The Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so that the Israelites can go through and the sea on dry ground. As for me, I am going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will, hard, they will go in after them, and I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and his army and his chariots and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. The Egyptians set out in pursuit all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, and went into the sea after them. During the morning watch, the Lord looked down at the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian forces into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. Let's get away from Israel, the Egyptians said, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea turned, returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea. The water came back and covered the chariots and the horsemen, plus the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. Not even one of them survived." But the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and his servant Moses. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, for he has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And the title of my message this morning is this, 
between the devil and the deep blue sea. And you can imagine, if you are Israel, that the day that you found out that Pharaoh was finally letting you go was a great day of celebration. After 430 years of slavery, after plague, after plague, after plague, after the Passover, after Pharaoh just seeming to be more and more stubborn, he finally says, go. In fact, he doesn't just say go. He's like, get out of here as fast as you can. Fortunately, you were dressed and ready to go. And so with all of the the belongings and all of the treasures that your Egyptian neighbors handed over to you and told you to leave, you head out. Finally free. And, And the route that you take out of Egypt and towards the promised land, it's not the most direct route. Because God recognizes you have no stomach for war, doesn't want you turning and heading back into Egypt and saying, nope, none of this. He takes them the long way around, around the Philistine land, as we learned last week. And after a number of days of traveling, the Lord does something interesting. He actually tells Israel, hey, I want you to actually double back. Kind of turn and cut back a little bit, back towards where you have come and set up camp between Migdal and the sea. Put your back to the sea and set up camp. A few days or maybe a few hours, we don't know, after Israel had set up camp and established a location, there's a rumbling in the distance. Kind of feel like, is is the ground moving? What, What is that? And then off in the distance on the horizon, shadows start to form. Is that people? Horses? Are those chariots? And then it begins to dawn on you. That's Egypt. Egypt's coming for us. Egypt's army and all of their chariots are coming after us. We thought we were free, and yet here's Pharaoh's army bearing down on us at full speed. You can imagine the thoughts that were going through their mind. What is going on? How did this happen? Are we going to die here? And here's the problem, the predicament that Israel finds himself in. One, you can't run. That many people on foot being chased by the fastest chariots of the most powerful army in the world, no chance you were going to run. But there's nowhere to run. What's at your back? The sea. You can't just wade into a deep sea and try to swim across miles and miles When you have thousands, hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, we don't know exactly how many people, but there's no way they're running. Israel was literally between the Pharaoh and the deep Red Sea. Between a rock and a hard place, we might say. An impossible situation. Ever been there? Ever experienced one of those things? Now, I don't think anybody in this room has found themselves caught between the most powerful army in the world and a deep sea and a deep ocean. If you have, please let me know because I want to hear that story. But I bet you would say you have found yourself in an impossible situation, trapped on both sides. Perhaps you have found yourself in circumstances outside your control. Perhaps you have found yourself trapped by relational conflict that no matter how hard you try, it doesn't seem you can escape and bring reconciliation. 
Maybe you have found yourself trapped by your sin and your failure and your brokenness. And it feels like no matter how hard you try, no matter disciplined you get, failure. Maybe you found yourself trapped by financial circumstances that seem overwhelming. And no matter how much money you save, no matter how much of a budget you're on, it doesn't seem like you can get ahead and make ends meet. Maybe you have felt stuck and trapped by a culture that continually tells you to abandon biblical truth. And so you're stuck on that on one side. On the other side is the threat of losing a job or respectability or a relationship. Or maybe you've felt the pain of being trapped in a body ravaged by sickness and disease or disability. Trapped in your body on the one side and by the shadow of death on the other. Have you ever felt stuck? Ever felt trapped? Actually, I don't think that's the right question. Of course you have. We all have. It's the reality of living in a fallen and broken world. So the question isn't if, the question is when. Maybe you're there right now. Maybe you'd raise your hand and say, that's my reality right now. If it's not, let me let you in on a little secret. It will be tomorrow. And if not tomorrow, maybe the next day. If not the next day, good for you, but it will come. We can't escape this. At some point in our life, we will find ourselves trapped between the devil and the deep blue sea. We'll find ourselves trapped between a rock and a hard place. We'll find ourselves in a situation where it feels like we are surrounded with nowhere to go. So then the question becomes this, what do we do with it? How do we respond? How do we respond when we find ourselves in these situations? For Israel, the response was fear and despair. And then turning on Moses. As verses 11 and 12 tell us, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Gotta love the sarcasm. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. We knew it, Moses. We told you. We told you this was going to happen. We told you, just leave us alone. Leave us to our slavery. If we get out there in the wilderness, we're going to die. We knew it, Moses. Here we are. After all they had seen, after all they had seen the Lord do, plague after plague after plague, the Passover here they are despairing, turning in fear, turning on Moses. Oh, how quickly hope becomes despair. Do you know that feeling? Ever experienced that? One minute you are hopeful and it's like, God is amazing. God has rescued. God has such a blessing for me. My faith is good and strong. The next moment, God, what are you doing? Are you leaving me here to die? Have you abandoned me? Friends, if we're honest, <laughs> if we're honest, it's so easy for our hearts to swoon. So easy for our hearts to swoon from faith to fear and despair. So easy to be just like Israel and in fact start longing for where we used to come, where we used to be. Like, isn't it interesting that we will start to long for a return to the very things God brought us out of? Because, strangely enough, those things feel like comfort. 
insecurity. It's strange. But this is what Israel was longing for. Better to be in Egypt than to die out here. Better to be where there was a sense of security and comfort than to die out here where we have to walk around not knowing what's going to happen next. See, a life of faith, that's hard. Too much trust. Too much not knowing what's going to happen next. Too much having to die to self and to preference and to comfort and control. And when we find ourselves in those moments, we find ourselves between the devil and the deep blue sea, our hearts swoon. Our hearts swoon. They move from hope to despair. But it's in the midst of that fear. It's in the midst of that despair that God's word gives us this incredible hope, this life-giving truth that anchors us, that sets us, that strengthens us. Friends, whenever you feel trapped, whether today or tomorrow, God's word declares something to you. God's word gives you a hope. God's word gives you a truth to hold to with all that you are. And it is this, take heart. God defeats all enemies and delivers his people. Friends, when you find yourself between the devil and the deep blue sea, this is the truth that brings life and brings hope and brings comfort that God defeats all enemies and delivers his people. As Moses declares to Israel in verses 13 and 14, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. The Lord will fight for you and you must be quiet. Yes, Israel, you're stuck. You're stuck between Pharaoh and the deep Red Sea. But stand firm. Don't be afraid. The Lord fights for you. Yes, friend, First City Church, friend that I haven't met that's in the room, you are stuck between the devil and the deep blue sea. You are stuck in between a rock and a hard place. Yes, you are trapped. These are realities of life. But take heart. Stand firm. Don't fear. The Lord fights for you. God defeats all enemies and delivers his people. This is the hope, this is the comfort, this is the strength that this passage, that this story that we, many of us are so familiar with, holds out for us. And so I wanna take this story and I wanna look at it from some different angles in some ways to show us how we can have such confidence because I think that's a, a question that hangs over the story and we can sort of gloss over it if we're not paying attention to the details. How could Moses be so confident with the most powerful army in the world bearing down on them. A bunch of slaves that have been released like maybe a few days or a few weeks, we don't know. People who are in no shape to fight. How could Moses be so confident telling Israel, don't be afraid, stand firm? Have you ever asked yourself that question about this story? Or have you just sort of like rushed to the end where God splits the sea and Israel passes through? Now, there are some things in this story that I want us to, to hone in on to recognize how we can have confidence. Because listen, sometimes religious people, and, and I put myself in this category, sometimes pastors, and I've made this mistake, sometimes we just throw out sayings very flippantly. Don't be afraid. Stand strong. The Lord will fight for you. Like, I'm glad I heard a lot of amens there. I'm glad I heard that. We should amen those truths. But sometimes, let's be honest, those things just sort of ring hollow. 
like a bumper sticker or one of those cutesy little things you see in a Christian bookstore. Look, Moses had no time for cutesy platitudes. He wasn't writing a nice little Christian card and passing it around the people of Israel. Hey, take heart, don't be afraid. No, life and death. Pharaoh was coming to either kill them or return them to slavery. Real pain, real suffering was bearing down on them. And yet Moses, here he stands and says, don't be afraid, stand strong. How could Moses speak with so confidence, so, so much confidence? Well, as we have seen regularly throughout the first 15 chapters of Exodus, God's people have found themselves over and over again facing what seems like overwhelming odds. Right at the beginning of the book, the, the, the first Pharaoh we're introduced to begins systematically executing the children, the boy, young boys of Israel. And then later, another Pharaoh makes Israel's slavery even more difficult. And then here we are again. Yeah, Israel's been released. They're out in the wilderness. They're heading towards the promised land. But here comes Egypt with all of their chariots and their army. Things regularly get worse for God's people. Things regularly get difficult. But as we have seen time and time and time again, each and every time things get worse, what happens? God flexes. God puts his glory on display. God reveals to Israel and to Egypt who he is. God shows his glory and he delivers his people. He rescues his people and he defeats his enemies. He puts his power and glory on display so that Egypt and Israel would know he is the Lord and it would be very crystal clear, make no mistake, in this situation is no difference. Even before Egypt comes after Israel, here's what God says to Moses in verses three and four. Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, they are wandering around the land in confusion. The wilderness has boxed them in. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. Then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Catch this. I don't know if you've ever noticed this detail in the story, but pay attention here. The path that God led Israel on, that roundabout path, like he had his reasons for doing that because he wanted to keep them away from the, the Philistines, but he has them go on that roundabout path and he has them double back. Why? So that Pharaoh thinks they're lost. God is setting Pharaoh up. He is making it appear as if Egypt or Israel is lost. So Pharaoh and Egypt will go, well, we should go after them. They're wandering around. They're lost. They're not going to escape. Let's go get them and bring them back. God's provoking Pharaoh. Then it says, God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. There are a number of times that we've seen in this passage where it says God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And, and not, not, a lot, not any time, we don't have time to, to get into all the dynamics and there's different takes on what exactly that means. But, but here's what's important to recognize what, what is happening here. God's not causing Pharaoh to do something he wouldn't normally do. God isn't putting something into Pharaoh's heart that wasn't there before. He, he's allowing the evil already in Pharaoh's heart to more fully overtake, to more, to more fully flood into his desires so that he would go after Israel. 
God was no longer restraining evil, but allowing it to fully overtake Pharaoh. And get this, this is what's hard. God was allowing evil to come after his people. Look, if that isn't hard to chew on, help me, because that's hard for me to chew on. Like that God at times allows evil to come at his people. There's tension, there's struggle, there's questions, there's mystery here that we can't just dismiss and gloss over. And there are things about this passage that I don't have answers for, that we don't have answers for. But here's what this shows us. Here's where we can have confidence, why we can have confidence. Going back to that question, how could Moses speak with so much confidence? God allowed Pharaoh, he allowed evil to come after his people. But listen, it was a setup. It was a setup for a takedown. God was setting Pharaoh up so that he could bring him down. Listen, evil, for all its rebellion against God, for all that it does not... It does not submit to God's authority and God's truth and God's goodness. It is not acting independently of God. Evil is not off the chain doing whatever it wants and God is sort of like the ambulance driver responding to it. And I know this is hard to wrestle with and chew on, but what what the hope that this gives us, what this points us to, is that God is sovereign over evil. As much as we don't understand why God does what he does, what this shows us is that God is sovereign over evil. He has purpose. Why is God allowing Pharaoh to go after Israel? Well, he says, so that Egypt will finally and fully see and know that God is the Lord. Those who oppose the Lord, those who way back in chapter five goes, who's the Lord? I don't know the Lord. Do you know the Lord? Mocking. God says, they're gonna know who I am fully and completely. I'm going to get glory from them. Why can Moses confidently call Israel to not be afraid and stand firm? Because the book of Exodus has shown us over and over and over and over again. Hardship, suffering, pain, trial, opposition, threat, these things do not deter or defeat the power of God. No, It is at those places, those places where the glory of God is going to shine the brightest. Those are the places where God is going to put his power on display to defeat all enemies and deliver his people. These are the places where we get to see who God truly is, his full power and goodness and faithfulness. This is why Moses could speak so confidently and tell Israel, do not be afraid and stand firm because he knew what God was up to. He knew what God was about to do. He knew that in this place of fear and despair with Pharaoh bearing down on them, God was going to flex and his glory was gonna be put on display. This is where the greatest truth in all of reality was gonna be declared. Yahweh is the Lord. He defeats his enemies and delivers his people. That's Moses' confidence. Now listen, I am not, (laughs) I'm not trying to simplify or eliminate any tension or any wrestle here. Like, like there's so much about why God acts the specific way he does in our lives that we don't understand, that we're not going to know. 
Look, we, we struggle to hold like two thoughts in our minds at once. Like, like we can barely keep our schedule straight. We're so finite and limited. There's no way we are gonna understand an infinite, all-knowing God and his wisdom, right? It's just not gonna happen. So there's so much we're not going to understand. But friends, here's the rub of the book of Exodus. Here's the thing that it continually challenges us with. In the midst of the pain and the hardship and the, the struggles and the, and the failure and the threats and the opposition, like what's more powerful in our minds? What power is more real to us? Is it the power of hardship and suffering and failure and threat and opposition? Or is it the sovereign power of God? Well, what power are we going to live by? What power are we going to orient our lives to? That's the wrestle. That's the question. That's the rub. For Israel, the power of Pharaoh and his army, that was what was most real. The, the reality, there's no way we're going to escape because we've got a sea to our back. That was most real. That, that seemed more, most powerful. And, and is it not true for us that, that when the, the power of hardship and pain and failure and, and threat come crashing in, they feel more real to us, we can respond in some really unhelpful ways. Like some of us, and I'm going to put myself squarely in this camp, and to be perfectly honest, I'm like standing up here sort of living here right now. When that stuff comes bearing down, we shut down. It's like too much. Too much. And it feels like, man, God, where are you? God, God it feels like your power is just, you kind of just like pulled it up, and just sucked it, out of, sucked it out of the room, sucked it out of my life, and, and here I am sort of floundering. It seems like trying gets us nowhere. Hope just leads to disappointments. Like I'm an idiot and I'm regularly failing at this thing. It seems like God has it out for me or he doesn't really care. Ever had that conversation with yourself? <laughs> Whatever the internal dialogue is, we can go passive. And so we, we retreat in order to, to try to carve out some semblance of comfort or control for ourselves our own little version of safety. And here's what happens. We end up living with little faith, little hope, little joy, little peace, little love, little risk, take little action and live little lives. Or for others of us, we try to grab for control. Like when those things come bearing down, we don't go passive, we get hyperactive. It doesn't seem like I can depend upon God or I certainly can't depend upon others. So I am going to control my life. Like, I'm going to control my schedule. I'm going to control my finances. I'm going to control my marriage and my kids and my relationships. I'm going to achieve in order to solve all of my problems. I'm going to protect myself and keep myself safe. Here's the fruit of that. Stress, angst, anxiety, loneliness, exhaustion. So friends, listen, listen. We can theologize, we can philosophize, we can wrestle through all the questions about how God's sovereignty and human responsibility and evil, all those things work in some mysterious way. Like we can do all that, that's fine, that's fun sometimes. But listen, if hardship and suffering and pain and failure and threat and opposition are bigger to us than the sovereign power of God, consequences are devastating. 
It's going to crush us one way or another. We're going to be defeated one way or another. Believing in the sovereignty of God is not just some theological intellectual exercise. It matters for how you live your life because it determines what is most real to you, what is most powerful to you, what do you put your hope and trust in. This was the rub for Israel in this moment. Was Pharaoh more powerful or the sovereign hand of God? Well, rather than letting them wallow in their fear and despair, Moses calls them to not be afraid and to stand firm, and then God calls them to move. And there's this interesting juxtaposition between what Moses says and and God's instruction. So Moses tells Israel to be quiet. This literally means to be calm, not restless with anxious energy and worrying, not making ridiculous comments out of self-pity. Look, Israel's comments here, I mean, come on, they're a bit much. Like, what was Moses supposed to say? Yeah, you got me. You know, all all the plagues and the Passover, it was just a big ruse to get you all out here so we could show you how fast Pharaoh's chariots are. Like, their comments, we can understand. But there's 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 kind of a melodramatic tinge to them. And so Moses is like, hey, drop the act. (laughs) Drop the angst. Drop the melodrama. And then this is what the Lord says to Moses. Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Does it strike you as odd that God says, why are you crying out to me? Aren't we supposed to do that? Are we not supposed to cry out to the Lord? Yes, absolutely. Crying out to the Lord is a good thing. But what's the problem? Israel's cries weren't cries of faith and for rescue. They're cries of complaining. Angsty hearts spilling over into angsty words that just make them more angsty. Not words that lead them to places of comfort and peace and security in the Lord. No, just more angst, more fear, more despair. So Moses tells them to be quiet and then God says, hey, stop crying out, get up. Get up and move. Get up and take a step of faith. Get up and follow my lead because I am going to deliver you. I'm going to provide a way of rescue. Step out and trust me. Friends, have have you ever found yourself fooling yourself into believing that your cries are legit when they're really just a bunch of angst, born of an angsty heart, just making you more and more angsty? Friends, in those moments, in those moments, we need to be quiet. We need to drop the melodrama. And we need to take that step wherever God is leading, look at where he is leading and see, hey, it's time to follow, time to trust, time to move forward. And that God has them pass through the sea. Look, this is not random. That God had them move in position and set up with the sea at their back was not random. That God then tells them to turn towards and walk through the sea is not random. Look, God could have delivered them in a number of ways. Like, didn't the the glory cloud pick up from in front of them, go between them and kind of cloud Egypt? Like, it could have just hung there as they, like, left. Or God could have just struck the Egyptian army dead just right there. 
but he hasn't passed through the sea. And this is significant. You see, in the Bible, particularly in the first five books, and, and Exodus is part of this first five books called the Pentateuch, the sea carries multiple symbolic meanings. For one, the sea was a sign of chaos and disorder and even danger. We see this first shown in Genesis 1. The, the description speaks of the earth being formless and void at creation, and there's darkness covering the surface of the sea and the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. This is a picture of disordered creation. The chaos that was the sea, though, God puts into order, gives it boundaries, sets its structure, God bringing order to chaos. But this connection didn't go away. In the ancient world, to venture on the sea was seen to, to venture out into the threat of chaos and danger. And then in Genesis 6 through 8, where we read about the great flood that covered the earth, the way that that is described is God essentially allowing the boundaries of the water to be broken. And so the water like overshot its boundaries. Chaos overcoming and taking back over the earth. Sort of a decreation taking place. But we also see in the great flood, two other symbols, judgment and cleansing. God uses water to judge sin and rebellion through the earth. And he cleanses the earth through water. Interestingly enough, in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul says that when Israel passed through the sea, Israel was being baptized, a sign of being washed clean of their sins. So God having them go through the sea was declaring something to Israel. I am the God who carries you and delivers you from the chaos around you. Chaos, hardship, danger, threat, they aren't all powerful, I am. And I'm the God who forgives, cleanses, and gives you new life. You belong to me, Israel. Do not despair. Trust me. Trust me. And so God has them pass through the sea. A powerful east wind splits the sea with walls of water on both sides and dry ground, and they pass through. But God is not, does not stop there. Once again, God provokes the heart of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and the Egyptian army goes in after Israel but then he causes confusion and they're, they're not able to drive straight and they, they sort of get stuck. And then all of a sudden, Egypt begins to realize what's happening for them. They're like, hey, we need to get away from Israel because the Lord is fighting for them. Now they know who the Lord is. Now they are seeing his power, but it's too late. Moses again stretches out his hand with his rod, his staff, and the waters of the Red Sea come crashing down on the Egyptians, wiping out the entire army. Not a single person survives. God truly fought for his people. He defeated the enemy and he delivered them. And then how does Israel respond? Well, as verse 31 tells us, when Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and his servant Moses. So they go from despair and fear, fearing Pharaoh, to now fearing the Lord to now believing and trusting in him. And instead of rebelling against Moses, they believe in Moses. But it doesn't stop there. No. A party breaks out. A song, celebration breaks out. It, Moses leads the people in this song of celebration. And 
uh, chapter 15, verses one through three, we, we sort of get that, the first uh, verse and chorus of this. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. From fear and despair to great hope and praise. And this song that goes through verse 21 in chapter 15. This song becomes one of the great hymns of the nation of Israel. A hymn they would sing as they traveled through the wilderness, a hymn that they would sing in the promised land, a hymn that they would sing during times of exile. No matter the time or place or circumstance, they sang this hymn to remind themselves that even when they were caught between the devil and the deep blue sea, they could take heart. That God fights for his people, that God defeats his enemies, and delivers his people. And so here for us is a question, a wrestle. When we are caught between the devil and deep blue sea, do we sing like this? Do we celebrate? Do we praise? Do words of, of expressing who God is and his greatness and his glory and his power and his rescue come welling forth from our hearts well, maybe you said, well, I've never seen him split a Red Sea for me. I've never seen him drown an army. I've never seen anything like this. So it's a little bit hard for me to, to sort of connect with this level of praise. Well, friends, here's the good news for us. Yeah, God hasn't split the Red Sea for us. He hasn't drowned an army in front of us. But he's done something far greater. What have we seen over and over and over and over again as we've been going through this series in Exodus? That all these great events in Exodus, for all the, the power and, and the history-changing, history-altering reality that they are, and these events that we look at and we're like, wow, what an event. But foreshadows, but arrows, but signs pointing to something even greater, something more meaningful, something more profound, Friends, when you and I were caught between the devil and the deep blue sea, God didn't split the Red Sea for us. He sent Jesus. When you and I were trapped between the devil and our sin and death, he sent Jesus, the son of God. And Jesus willingly, lovingly came into our world. And what did he do? He fought for us. He fought against oppressive religious rulers by exposing their hypocrisy and showing their, that their teaching was powerless. Jesus fought against the devil as he cast out demons. Jesus fought against sickness and disease as he healed. Jesus fought against hate with love. He fought against judgmentalism and, and self-righteousness with grace and truth. Like Jesus stepped into this world to fight all of our enemies. And then, in his greatest act of battle, his greatest move, Jesus willingly laid down his life. God allowed evil to come for his son and strike him down. But on the cross, Jesus took the judgment for you and I. He took the judgment and the penalty of sin that you and I deserved on himself so that we could be forgiven. And, but on the cross, as Colossians 2 tells us, Jesus also defeated every evil ruler and power and authority, exposing them to open shame, putting them to open shame. 
In his resurrection, Jesus defeated death and took away its sting. Jesus fought against, as Eric reminded us this morning, fought against our greatest enemies, and he won. Friends, why do what we think about, oh, that'd be so cool to see the Red Sea parting, but even greater than that is Jesus resurrected. Jesus crucified and resurrected in all that he has done for us. And here is the beautiful truth that Jesus now stands sovereign over all the chaos, sovereign over all the evil, sovereign over every hardship, suffering, and threat. He is the resurrected and reigning king. And for those of you who are in Christ, you're forgiven. You've been set free. As Romans 6 says, you've been baptized into Christ and as Christ died, so have you died to sin and its power. As he was raised to new life, you now walk in new life and new power. Baptized into Christ, you have been washed clean by the power of the Holy Spirit. For you are, who are in Christ, one day, listen, one day, unless Christ returns, we're going to die. But when we die, death does not swallow us. No, we pass through death. And when Christ comes back, we are going to be resurrected in power and glory. We're going to be in bodies that are no longer touched by sin and touched by death and touched by disease, bodies that are never going to die. When Jesus returns, he's going to renew and restore all things, finally and completing, de defeating evil and sin and corruption forever. And so look, friends, we may not have a split Red Sea. We may not have a drowned army. But we get sin defeated, evil defeated, death defeated, resurrection power, eternal life. Christ has won those battles, won those victories, and he will win those battles and will win those victories. That's what we have in Jesus. And so look, yes, life is difficult until Christ returns and renews all things. Life will still be hard. We're not home yet. We're in the wilderness. And at times we are going to be caught between the devil and the deep blue sea, but we need not fear or despair. We can take heart. Like we can have confidence that God defeats all enemies and delivers his people. Why? Because Jesus is resurrected. We can have confidence that he has done it and he will do it. And so when you find yourself stuck, friends, oh, don't believe the lie that the power of hardship, suffering, pain, and failure and threats are greater than the sovereign power of Christ. Don't give over to the angsty, heart-spilling, angsty words. Rather, let your heart be filled with praise. Yes, we lament and we cry out, but we do that falling forward. We do that with a faith that seeks comfort in Christ. Friends, when you find yourself stuck, don't fall into passivity. Don't retreat and settle for little faith and little hope and little joy and little peace and little love and little risk. No, step out and take that one step of obedience. Like, look, if you truly believed, if you truly believe that God fights for you, if you truly believe that God defeats all enemies and will deliver you, what is that step of obedience that you would take even today? Answer that question and move. Take that step. Friends, when you feel stuck, don't anxiously try to grab for control, believing it is up to you to order your life. As I heard a good friend once put it, exercise that muscle of release. If you truly believed God fights for you, that he defeats all enemies and delivers his people, what would you stop trying to control? 
what would you release? Answer that question and move. Take that step of faith. Follow Jesus. Friends, that Christ is the resurrected and reigning king, that he's victorious over all things, the places of hardship, suffering, pain, failure, and threat do not defeat or deter his power. No, those are the very places his power will be put on display in your life where you will see his glory. And here's what's beautiful about this. One day, we're gonna be like Israel and we're gonna sing about this. I, I never noticed this detail before in the book of Revelation, but in chapter 15, there's this picture of, of God's people who have gathered around and they're, and they're worshiping. They're worshiping because they've just experienced this great victory. And, and this is what they're singing. They sang the song of God's servant Moses and the song of the Lamb. Great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways. King of the nations, Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you because your righteous acts have been revealed. Listen, we're gonna be singing the song of Moses, the Lamb Remix. Like this will be our song for all eternity, celebrating all God's work, celebrating his glory and his power. But here's the good news. We don't have to wait. We don't have to wait. This song that we are going to be singing for eternity, we can sing right now. We can celebrate what Christ has done and what he will do. We can celebrate that even when we are trapped between the devil and the deep blue sea, that we know our God fights for us, Christ fights for us, and he will defeat all enemies, and he will de deliver his people. Amen? Let's pray.